Hey everyone, before this podcast begins, we want to tell you about some other arts-related podcasts you're going to love. They are The Conduit Music Podcast, Artsville, Gringo and the Man, Art World Horror Stories, and Not Real Art. On these action-packed podcasts, you'll hear experts talk about creativity, design, the music biz, the art world, visual art, American craft, Chicano art, street art, graffiti, and even stand-up comedy. So be sure to find and follow these great arts podcasts today. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to Not Real Art, the podcast where we talk to the world's most creative people. I am your host, your trusty, faithful, tireless, relentless host, Sourdough, coming at you from Crew West Studio in Los Angeles. Man, do we have a great show for you today. We're talking to the one and only Taiji Terasaki, Japanese-American artist based in Honolulu, Hawaii, and just an incredible, intelligent, creative here. And we're going to get into some really interesting things that I know you're going to love and be inspired by. So hang on for that. Before we get into this great conversation, I want to thank you for tuning in. We're so grateful for your loyalty, and we do this for you. So that's it. Of course, Please share this episode, like, comment, follow if you don't already. All that helps the algorithm gods smile on us, and we are very grateful for your help doing that. Of course, I want to encourage you to go to notrealart.com and check out all the cool, healthy stuff we got for you there. Lots of resources for artists, but also lots of amazing stories about artists because we're all about celebrating and elevating artists, helping them tell their stories and promote their work, which is exactly why I'm so grateful to have Taji Terasaki on today, Japanese-American artist based in Honolulu, Hawaii. Such an interesting cat. I mean, his background's fascinating. He grew up in a family of scientists and creatives. He spent years exploring and innovating in around his craft, working in photography and sculpture, you know, immersive and large-scale installations, pioneering mediums like mist projections as canvas. How cool is that? Projecting images on mist. His cutting-edge presentations are often juxtaposed by the subjects of culture and environmental conservation, preservation, and restoration. And he is just one of these amazing people who's just doing some really important work. We were brought together by our mutual friend, Heidi Johnson at Hijinks PR. So we're really grateful that she brought us together. Taji's been doing a lot of interesting work in and around LA that you're going to hear about in this episode. But, you know, I just love talking to Taji because, you know, he's got both the right side of the brain and the left side of the brain, but also his lens as a Japanese American artist is very interesting, of course, because here in America, if you are a artist of color, the struggle is perhaps even more real than for your average white artist out there. So anyway, very good conversation about the journey and the challenges that he's had, as well as, you know, all the great work he's doing. He's also recently founded Make Visible, which is a 501c3 nonprofit whose mission is to create and sponsor innovative platforms for artists to further their practice and gain greater visibility. Boy, does that sound familiar? I think we share a lot of the same values, which is also one of the reasons why I so appreciated talking to Taji. So, you know, without further ado, you know, and by the way, I failed to mention, of course, that Tajay has like, I mean, he's got real credit. He's got, you know, studied MFA program at Hunter College in New York, Cal State Long Beach, and holds a BFA from UC Irvine. He's got the smarts. He's got the book smarts, too. <laughs> anyway, without further ado, let's get into this conversation with the one and only Taji Terasaki.
Taiji, welcome to Not Real Art. Thank you. Oh, man, I, I'm so grateful we're able to pull this off. I know it's kind of short notice here. You know, our mutual friend, Heidi Johnson, who we love. We love our Heidi. I was so great that she, I was so grateful she reached out to tell me about your project. For sure. You know, yeah, Heidi, I've known Heidi for quite a long time. We've done projects together. She's excellent person because she has a big heart and that's what my projects require. Oh, excellent. Yeah, that's the essential ingredient, right? <laughs> of of <Yes>. anybody <laughs> that I like to to be with, let alone people work with. And Heidi does have a generous heart. How long how long have you known Heidi? I've known Heidi, let's see. Let's see who let's see who wins. I've known Heidi 15, 12 years, maybe 12 years. Oh, well, you totally. I don't know. Do I win? How many, how long have you known? For sure. I've, I think it's been three years for me. It started with a exhibition at the Japanese American National Museum. Yes. Yes. That was the start of it. Yeah, well, trust me, she regrets knowing me that long, but that's, you know, like, <laughs> that's a, that's something she and I have to work, have to work out on. She's fantastic. And I'm so excited yes. to, to talk to you about you and your work and your practice. You know, you and I haven't met and, and I don't know how familiar you are with our podcast, but we like to think that we talk to the world's most creative people. And so, you know, and it spans the gamut. Mostly we talk to visual artists, but we talk to comics and we talk to actors and we talk to writers. And so the fact that you are a interdisciplinary artist, you fit right in, my friend. And I'm so glad oh. to have you here. Well, really honored. I love to talk to, I, I'm anticipating, I'm going to really love our conversation. <laughs> Thank you for creating this situation. I'm excited to get into this too. You know, one of the things that jumped out at me as I was reading, you know, about your work and your history in your bio, it says that you made your public debut in 2017. My friend, that was like five seconds ago. <laughs> <laughs> so, so take me back. Like, what what is your journey? What has been your journey as an artist, and and why and why such a late bloomer? You know, so to speak. I mean, that seems to be the implication. Exactly. <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. I from childhood. I could say I was always interested in art. Sure. And then I attended UC Irvine for my undergraduate, then Hunter College. But as many artists find, you know, they it's a tough road trying to survive as a visual artist. And so I waited quite a long time, for sure, to start the art practice, the serious art practice up. And so one of the great things that happened for me was I have this property in Hawaii and we were able to make a very, very reasonable studio space. And space is really important for visual artists, to tell you, in my opinion. And so that's part of it. The other part of it was, you know, I really find that it's interesting that when artists make their bodies of work, it usually starts with something and it grows from that area. And it it doesn't really vary so much from it because that's just the way an artist's career works best, that they have a focus and things. So I was really thankful that when I started fairly recent, social causes and issues became the focus for artists to do. And so I think it also triggered me to say, oh, this is the perfect time. This is what I want to do. Soon after, uh, maybe a year or so after I was practicing, Trump became president. And for me, there was many things to react to. And so that's what I did. And then since then, yeah, I've been extremely busy and really enjoying this is the best life at this point right now. <laughs> so I, I'm really happy that it worked out that way. But I would say we really, I have a studio team and we've been really concentrating very heavily on different issues. So that's why. So what were you doing then before you sort of, you know, before you came out as an artist sort of officially in 2017, what were you doing prior to that? So I've had many jobs <laughs> from, you know, teaching English in Japan. And then I did nonprofit work in foundations, which I've always have a liking for. And I was a designer in the design, in the garment business. And that, I mean, that was very helpful for me to learn to work with teams of people. You know, we would have to come up with concepts and then, you know, I mean, it, it's huge. The amount of people that you have to interact and get things done. That really, I'm, what I'm saying, you know, with that nonprofit work and then the design 
portion and and there's some other things in there. It really led up to my skill set that I use today. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting because we use this term artist and, you know, I feel like the novice or less experienced person might jump to the conclusion, right, that when you say the word artist, you mean painter or illustrator or sculptor, when in fact those are maybe skills, but that's not necess- that doesn't necessarily make you an artist, right? There's a heart and a mindset and a point of view, a voice that starts to animate one's art and animate artists. And so it's interesting because you may have been painting or drawing for years, but that doesn't necessarily mean you found your voice or have clarified your perspective. And what I love about your story is that like many artists, you know, you took the scenic route, <laughs> right? <laughs> and you you lived a life, you had a life. And that must inform the work that you do. I mean, so much of the work that you do is about, dare I say, social justice issues, obviously activism. And so, you know, when you have a few miles under your, your feet, a few spins around the sun, clearly you start to see uh, as we grow older, you know, some of the grave issues, existential issues that we're grappling with. And for you as an artist to take those on is such a wonderful thing. So I can see that your character arc, right, as a human, you know, in fashion and working in the nonprofit space, I can totally see how those dots connect to bringing you to where you're at in your life today in terms of art making and the stories you're trying to tell. Yes. And I don't want to leave out the raising children. (laughs) (laughs) That's been a big part. Isn't that true? Yeah, it really is true too. So my first one is in college now, but to realize what they're going through and the earth they're going to be inheriting and the issues that come along with it is really on my mind all the time. Really? Well, we can connect as dads too. My kids, I'm an I'm a late bloomer myself. I became a dad at 42, and so I have uh, at 52. I have two kids under 10, and so mm-hmm. you, my friend, have me. Uh, you know, I, I I need to take notes from you because if your kids are in college, you did it, my friend. You did well, but I grapple with these same issues. Uh, you know, what the hell am I leaving my children? It's a troubling scary thought that it's very tempting to sort of stick our hand our head in the sand because what can one person do but yet we have to do what we can do then i so appreciate you taking so many important issues on in your work as an artist but also as a father oh thank you so i think part of it also is stewardship is that the right word steward stewardship <laughs> yeah <laughs> sure yeah yeah the stewardship of our guardians of the earth and so I think what helps me also is I have, I think I mentioned I have a staff. They're all creative people and they're young compared to me. So, I mean, they're young in their 20s. And so I think they help inform me many things and what they're thinking about. And they keep my art and technology more on so without them, I really want to give credit to them. They're crucial to my practice. Without yeah. them, you wouldn't be the TikTok star that you are, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, it's, it's really interesting. Yeah, I, not too long ago, I had uh, some young artists say, you know, you, you why, why aren't you in TikTok? You need to be in TikTok. I said, my God, the last thing I, I want to do or need to do is be on <laughs> another social media platform. It's all I can do to keep up with email. <laughs> well, that, yeah. that is right. And that's so true, right? Like seeing the world through younger eyes is so important to remaining relevant, not just kind of as a person, maybe in terms of what's happening on the street, but certainly as an artist and grappling with contemporary issues, because certainly you'd have every, as a human, you had every right to say, you know what, I'm a dad, I got two kids in college. I'm just going to chill. I'm going to focus on them. That would be fine. But as an artist, you're saying, no, 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 I, I need to contribute and need to use your platform, create a platform and use that platform to amplify and shine a light on these existential crises that not just our children, but the whole planet are facing. Mm -hmm. 
for sure. They're past that age where they need their father quite intensely like that before. So they even follow me on Instagram and occasionally say, oh, dad, did you have to post that? (laughs) 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 But anyway, life is, is such a joy for me right now. So, you know, one of the things I had a issue or not issue, but I had an kind of an experience the other day that sort of shined a light for me personally on some of these issues our kids are grappling with. And it's so fascinating. And there are many issues. I mean, and we'll get into, you know, obviously what you're doing here in LA in terms of nourishment and connecting your storytelling and your art to nutrition and food. And what does that mean, you know, on a meta level? We'll get into all that. But for me personally, I was back home the other day, happened to be driving by my old middle school. And I have known that A, some of my old teachers are still teaching, believe it or not. And also, I also knew that a couple of the kids that I grew up with are now teachers there. So I thought, and I had some extra time, I thought, well, heck, I'm going to pull in and park and go in and, and see if I can say hello. And so I did, and I parked, and I go to walk in my school. And I was there in sixth grade, seventh grade, and eighth grade, which would have been 1982, 83, 84, 81, 82, 83, 84. And I was always a walker and could just walk right into the school building, no problem. Oftentimes the doors were wide open. The principal would be standing outside, you know, greeting us meathead kids as we came running in. And what struck me about my visit the other day was that when I got to the door, it was like it was barricaded. And in fact, it was barricaded. There were three layers of security that I had to buzz my way in to get into this school. Because, of course, I was reminded that nowadays, when kids go to school, they have to worry about active shooters in the building. Mm, my goodness. Yeah, right. Scary. And the school that I used to go to and look forward to and had fun at, no mental health. Biggest stressor I had was homework that day, maybe. And now kids are going to school with the stress of perhaps being shot and killed while they're trying to simply learn how to read, write and do math. And what does that do to our the mental health of our children? And so there's so many existential crises Pick one, right? Whether it's violence, gun violence at schools, whether it's climate change, whether it's water scarcity, whether it's scarcity of of opportunity and income, whether it's scarcity of food and nutrition in food deserts. If I'm my daughter, who's 10 and 11, or if I'm, you know, one of your kids in college, I can see how it's hard to be optimistic about the future. That's so true. But I don't know, for me personally, I do believe, I mean, if we, if we talk about climate change I do feel more positive. I finally tell I me why. Like, tell oh, me why. I want to know. Give me hope. Movements, just the movements that are happening. I mean, just very basic things, but the plastic movement to get rid of plastic that, um, disposable things, and then the amount of electric cars, and I mean, just very basic things. And that's where the I think the level should be. But yeah, getting to your the kids, you know, nowadays the movement of the uh, Asian hate that's evolved a scary 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 because when i grew up i didn't feel that i didn't feel any overt prejudice against asians but now there there is apparently out there and it's it's too bad that my kids generation have to face that for a hundred percent and it's interesting too and again i'm not trying to (laughs) we're here to talk about you i don't mean to talk about me but my kids are adopted, but and they happen to be kids of color. And, you know, and it's fascinating because as a straight white male dad, my experience around discrimination is is limited at best, if at all, and with the privilege that I happen to be born into. And so raising resilient, courageous, strong, wise, humble, but alert and aware, conscious children Walking on the planet is is our challenge, right, as parents, because it does feel like the hate meter is in the red these days. And, it, and I just I, I find it very troubling. And, you know, and I wonder to what extent it is the macro environmental factors, you know, whether it is geopolitical or whether it is climate change or whether it is any number of economic issues, what have you. I mean, how that is stoking, you know, it's easy to politicize these issues and point the finger and pass the buck and blame other, blame you, blame them, blame other. 
it's troubling because I wonder to what extent it boils down to, to the true nature of a human being. Yeah, that's very deep. I don't, yeah, there's not any easy answers to all that. It's fascinating. I don't want to sound like I'm pessimistic because actually I'm not, you know, I'm not because I'm not one of these people who thinks the sky's falling. Yes, we have had, we have really tough issues to deal with, but guess what? If you know a little bit of history, <laughs> you realize that it's been far tougher in the past and on so many metrics, we're doing way better <laughs> as a species than we were 50 years ago, 100 years ago, and certainly 200 years ago. And so, you know, so I do have hope because I feel like the long arc of history moves in the in the right direction. But part of the reason that is, is because artists like you are taking on important issues, shining a light and amplifying very important issues for around social justice or around activism that are so important. And to the extent that we're talking about the health and well-being of our planet, we can't talk about the health and well-being of our planet without talking about the health and well-being of humanity. And that gets to food and water, essentially, right? And your new mural in LA is all about nourishment and health and well-being of communities. Talk to me a little bit about or a lot. Talk to me a lot. Let me let me shut up for once <laughs> and talk and, and tell me about the journey and the inspiration and the process around creating the Recipes to Nourish Communities program that you have in L.A. right now. So I would say it really begins with we built our home and studio here in Hawaii. And from the very beginning, I envisioned sustainable gardening for food produce and really looked into more sustainable altruistic ways so it's it's what i what many people call food forests so i definitely believe in diversity and i'm a witness to the amazing things that can happen when you when you put those kind of principles into action you know it's not the monocrop farming yep. that were the industrial period has brought, but it really embraces the love of land and nature. And so that's the basic thing that happened. And then even though on an even more personal level, I was diagnosed with diabetes. Okay. And I was really surprised because I thought, you know, I ate healthy and had a healthy lifestyle. But I know quite a bit about diabetes now, and it's not a serious condition for me yet, but I'm taking all the precautions of eating the right things for my body. But, you know, I'm, I'm really angry a little bit that I wasn't exposed to education growing up about the danger of glucose in food and how it's creating glucose intolerance in so much of the population. And the problem is that many people don't even know that they have this problem yet. And that the diabetes is, you know, going up and up. And so it's things like that, that food issues that I would like to be talked about. And I think there's a lot of issues. There's, you know, partly it's the government, how they come up with what their standards are for good nutrition. I don't follow what they propose, definitely. But the other part of it is that I really admire nonprofits and activists. So my first project was at the Japanese American National Museum. And at that exhibit, I elevated 53 activists that function in the LA, you know, the California community. And so since then, you know, that's the social practice of my art. And I decided to take from that and do another segment. And that's what's brought me to recipes to nourish communities. I can't tell you the honor it is for me to elevate these individuals. And this time I concentrated the mural on four people and around food inequity. And they're doing a lot in Los Angeles to come up with some solutions or things to think about. And it's really in a great area and space. So I'm very excited the potential it will have. So the four people that you're featuring, let's learn about them. Who are they? Okay. So the first one is, let's see, it's Alma Backyard Farms. 
and it exists to reclaim lives of formerly incarcerated people, and they also repurpose land into urban farms. So their main farm right now is in Compton, but I visited and beautiful, beautiful place. The heart they put into it and their understanding of the biodiversity of growing things is so evident. And then they have markets and things that they open their property for the community to come in. And it's really trying to spread the message of healthy eating. So I really admire them a lot. And then next is Ron Finley. And he teaches uh, communities how to transform food deserts into food sanctuaries. So, I mean, that's just a... (laughs) One simple part explanation for his practice, it's much more varied than that, but really to be his energy and his outreach is amazing. He accomplishes so much. And then the next one is Fallen Fruit. And so they are a pair of visual artists and they're developing fruit accessibility and in fact, free fruit accessibility for communities So they go out into different areas. Well, they're now expanding into, you know, other countries too, but they had food maps that they hope people would would go visit and just learn from that idea of community, community sharing of food. And the last one is the LA Mission. And probably many of you heard of LA Mission because they've been so been around so for so long. They help to support the needs and meals and showers and shelter for Skid Row and beyond, really. And they last year they served more than a million meals to the community. So it's really significant what they do. And I do have to mention Troy Vaughn. He's the executive director. So I spoke with him and he really appreciates the visual artists. So he talks about how their headquarters will be full of uplifting images done by visual artists. And he really believes that that is an important aspect to introduce into Skid Row. Amazing. What a world-class group of heroes. I mean, you have heroes here that you are elevating and celebrating, doing what my grandmother used to say, God's work. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. And it's so essential. I mean, there's nothing more essential, nothing more fundamental than the food that we put in our bodies. It's incredibly hypocritical, right? For our government or anyone else to talk about the importance of good nutrition when so many people live in so-called food deserts where all they have is a convenience store, maybe a bodega or some kind of grocery store that does not have a nice selection of fresh food, foods and vegetables locally sourced. This is a huge part of the issue, right? Because there's not, I, I don't feel like the issue is lack of desire, right? It's it, it's your lack of demand. It's a lack of supply. Yes. I mean, it's scary. For example, when COVID hit Hawaii, finally people started to realize, whoa, they really experienced that feeling that most 90% of our food is shipped in to us. And so why not make more sustainable models so we're eating more local food? And that local food movement is really critical and important. I have a exhibit now in Japan, but it's called rewilding Palmyra. And that term rewilding, it's an incredible concept of conservation. And it's to return the land to its more natural state and to encourage the biodiversity. We have to think more about our ecosystems. And the reason that I'm just mentioning it is that it affects food and food production and that land use it's just, it's got to be discussed and it's not being discussed enough. But if we could tackle some of that, it would be a big, big approach to solving many issues. Right. Because they're also interlinked because we do live in an ecosystem and the ecosystem thrive and not just survive, but to thrive is delicately balanced dynamic of checks and balances, if you will. And too much of one thing and too little of another thing. I mean, you start think things start getting out of whack. And so, for example, you know, our reliant you talk about sugar, like think about corn. 
And our whole economy, our agricultural economy in this country is built on corn, corn and beef, those two things. Right. And how much of our health issues and environmental issues are directly linked to those two very th- two things. A, because cows and cattle are the number one creator of emissions that impact climate change, as I understand it, as well as the fact that people are eating beef. They're not probably eating grains and you need a balanced diet and all of that good stuff. But also with corn to make, you know, there's corn and everything, there's sugar and everything. And of course, that's contributing to obesity and all kinds of issues, diabetes, for example. And then again, you have this corruption of the system, corruption of the of the ecology, all the way down to the seeds, right? Because now you have companies like Monsanto who own all the seeds, they've patented the seeds, and if you don't use their seeds, they'll sue you. It's insane. It's insane how we have built our system up like this. And so now it's time to break that down. And that's the purpose of the of the mural. The mural we have, it's at the building of the Mural Conservancy, and they're a great foundation too. But they work to preserve murals in Los Angeles. And they were given this building by the city for, I think it's at least 10 years. And my mural will be up for at least two years. And so just thinking, I'm already thinking ahead of changing out the panels and then bringing in a new set of people to talk with and synergize with. It's significant that it's right there on the borderline of Skid Row. And so it'd be interesting in the two years how much effect we can actually make and then bringing all these organizations together to discuss things. Well, I'm so I'm reminded of the old saying, sunlight is the best disinfectant. And that's sort of what you're doing here, right? I mean, you're bringing sunlight, you're bringing exposure, you're exposing these issues, bringing awareness to LA, to the communities about these really important issues. And by the way, I, I don't mean to, to gloss over the fact that you were very vulnerable and frank about your diagnosis. I'm sorry that you were battling diabetes now. You know, you talked about, thank you for sharing that. Thank you for trusting us with that information. You know, it's very personal. must have been very hard. Sounds like you were shocked and surprised by this diagnosis, as I think probably so many people are. And that sort of gets to, I guess, the environmental factors, right? That we're we're living in a world like secondhand smoke. I mean, who knew, right, that the food you were eating were going to cause you this problem? And who knew that the person smoking a cigarette next to you was actually going to give you lung cancer? I totally don't mind sharing that bit of news because if anything, if it could help in any way to stop someone from or researching diabetes, I'm all for that. I do think that there's certain foods out there that are just, they need to be talked about that down the road, it's not going to be good for your body. So that's, you know, just more on a personal level that of things that I've learned you mentioned before, like how, why do I have more positive hope for the future? It's because I've learned about one of the things, for example, I learned about a project that is taking place in Alta C. It's a residency that I'm doing in San Pedro. They are researching seaweed production. And even though a lot of Americans probably aren't exposed to a lot of seaweed <laughs> eating, I am because from being from Asia and it's very positive because they're researching how to bring this to the U.S. and and grow it, and it's very healthy for the oceans. And you know they're really trying; they're really understanding the benefits of it. If seaweed is eaten by the cattle, it reduces that dangerous gas level that you, you alluded to prior. So it's things like that that there is a lot of effort put into better practice and. The Palmyra I mentioned, yeah, it's off of the Hawaiian Islands, but it's this strip of land that was destroyed by World War II. The good thing is they put an airstrip in there. So now scientists are going to that conservation land and studying a lot about how to solve climate change issues. And I was able to do a residency there too. And when you see what nature is capable of how it can rebound. It is just amazing. And they are trying to now 
share much more of that information, you know, with other scientists and everything. And even the science community, I was talking to someone recently, you know, as I understand it, science, the knowledge has been very territorial and sharing amongst other nations and things, but they're really approaching in a much more open forum these days. And that's very encouraging. But the things that the scientists are finding is is really important, you know, how to make the coral reefs resilient. And they have, they are doing that. Or how to reintroduce, you know, species that have been endangered or extinct. They're actually raising these species and things. So there's a lot of positive things going on. Is what I want to say. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there is. There absolutely is. And and I do always, you know, it's funny because I get fired up and I maybe start to sound, you know, sort of pessimistic or negative. And I'm actually not. I am hopeful. There's so many interesting things happening. Necessity is the mother of invention. And by the way, the right people know that this is happening and we need to fix it. And I feel like there is a lot of energy. I mean, this is kind of a a silly example, maybe, but, you know, given the context. But so, for example, I know that our U.S. military, the you know, the the military here in this country, I mean, they're adapting all of their bases for climate change. You know, (laughs) the Navy is making the changes that it has to make. And whether taxpayers, uh, whether the, the American citizens believe in climate change or not, their tax dollars are being spent by our military to adapt, you know, and adjust and, and so on and so forth. And and so, you know, it's it's interesting because changes are happening. Things are happening. There's a lot of energy in terms of helping to adapt and fix things. And in its creative minds and visionaries like yourself that are so part of the solution. We're part of the solution. And by the way, you and I having this conversation for people listening, we're part of the solution. We have to be realistic about the dangers and the risks, but we also have to be realistic in the hope and the responsibility and the opportunity we have to embrace our agency, right? And be the change that we want to see in the world locally. Yes, I, I believe in all that you're saying. And as you mentioned, <laughs> I never, believe me, I never dreamed I would be an activist or I would never dream I would be speaking my opinion over a podcast or <laughs> any of those things. But what I'm learning is, uh, what I'm going through is how artists can find a voice. And I'm not quite, if talk to me maybe in a few more years, <laughs> then I'll then I'll be able to give you a little better report how, <laughs> how successful I feel at it. But, you know, I really believe that the visual arts should make a difference in our world and what our future will become. And so there's things like I'm exploring augmented reality. And I think that's technology. You know, there's some things about technology we probably don't want to embrace, but there's a lot that we do. And technology and in art is so important. And the augmented reality is where, you know, you could do a QR code and then suddenly you see more information and things. I think that's a really good benefit to exhibitions that they could go dive, and you could deep dive into the issues more. Mm-hmm. And so I really it, like exploring those kind of things in technology. Yeah, isn't that great? I mean, you can now, you can layer, you can build layers yes. and go deeper yes. and add richness to your story and, and to your experience. That's powerful. Yes, it's definitely. I must say that from beginning of UC Irvine and into Hunter College, I always studied sort of a multimedia major format. And I love that being able to (laughs) do all kinds of things in corporate. And I do, you know, I do get, wouldn't say criticism, but remarks on what do you do? I do so many things. (laughs) But I really enjoy it. And I think that multi-layer of information and experience that you, you refer to, I think that's a very big part of my practice. And by the way, my friend, if you're not being criticized, you're not doing it right. You know, <laughs> that, that's, you know, if you don't have haters, you're not doing it right. As far as I can tell <laughs> Well, talk a little, you know, tell me about your practice. I mean, you're a multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary artist. You, you know, as we joked earlier, you're a late bloomer with so much amazing life experience under your heels that informs your storytelling, informs your, your voice and perspective as an artist. You know, you 
referenced your great staff that you have there in the studio that helps you bring your ideas to life. So, but, but take us through a typical day for you in terms of how you come into the studio and how you practice and the day-to-day. Yeah. You know, I love to share anything I can. So it's not unusual to start the day with the team meeting and go over, you know, different projects and getting reports from each of the individuals. And I think that's a huge part of sharing creative ideas. And yeah, my father was a scientist and he accomplished a lot in his life. I always tell people that artists and scientists seem to be in common and people don't always get that connection. But my father was very creative in his way. And, you know, people in his laboratory would whisper, oh, no, Dr. Terasaki is coming. What is this crazy idea going to be next? (laughs) So I do a bit of that in my studio, too, for sure. (laughs) They kind of sometimes open their jaw like, what do you want us to do? And so, But I think I'm always trying to push the envelope of innovation. And so I'm never scared of that. And so I'm... I'm always there to push different ideas ahead and projects. So we have to work as a team and we have a lot of deadlines. So that that's starting to become more and more of an issue. But as we grow and as our projects are getting bigger, it's interesting that my time, maybe a lot of people out there will say, what? It's not making the art. I mean, of course, I have to generate the creative ideas and give it direction and things. But the hands-on, a lot of it is coming from the studio. And a lot of my time is actually talking to people like you, or there's some words that are kind of feel a little dirty to artists, but like marketing, you know, how does the social media work and (laughs) those kind of issues. And then there's... Yeah, to to have a sustainable model, you know, you have to keep having and keep, to keep the staff going, you have to keep having projects. And so that becomes a big part of my time, to be truthful. Well, you're a leader, right? You're a leader, you're, you're a director, a producer, and it's the you're the visionary, right? That's wonderful, right? If, a, if an artist is hands-on and painting that painting and then that you know that's that's wonderful but there are other art forms and other artistic expressions that quite frankly require more than two hands and the idea that you have a team that helps you bring to life your vision totally makes sense to me and and, and quite frankly is a is I think a very smart, you know, the old saying, don't work hard, work smart. Well, you know, you're working smart and you've got people around you. And oh, by the way, yeah, you're right. If you're trying to make a living as an artist, it's a business and you've got to market and promote. And this is sort of the unfortunate truth, the inconvenient truth. (laughs) But that's what it takes if you want uh, the world to know what you're trying to say, because unlike the movie says, we build it, they don't necessarily come. We have to let the world know that we built it. Yes, that's true. But I don't want to give the idea that artists need a team of people. No, that's right. My daughter has some interest in going into visual arts, but she has made it clear to me <laughs> she doesn't want to be an artist like I am. <laughs> this daughter is 16 years old, so still in high school, but she's exploring painting, for example. And there's never what I suggest to anybody that this is the only way to to be established artists. And I'm still finding my way, believe me. <laughs> I'm still finding my way. Well, and that's right. I mean, you know, it, it's a process, right? It's a practice, right? So you're finding the best methods and the best workflows and the best team members and the best ways of doing things. And not all projects are the same. I mean, next year's uh, body of work may require layoffs in the studio. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) But you know what I mean? You might need more people. You know, I, I don't know, but it is a process. Well, that's wonderful. So how did you find your team. I mean, finding good people is is so hard. And let alone when you're trying to find people that share your values, which is so important. That goes back to the heart conversation that we were talking about in terms of Heidi, right? Finding people that have, have the right heart. How did you find your teammates? What a wonderful thing that you were able to find people who share your heart. Yeah. So yeah, the practice, I think, 
been, I didn't count the years, but five or six years. But a couple of people are from the very beginning, and they, I'm thankful that they're still with me. The majority is like、mm, two or three years, and a lot of them find through the university, the UH, and or word of mouth. And I, yeah, I mean, I've been through quite a lot of changes in the staff. But I'm really appreciative of what we have now. We really work well together, and that's what it takes. You know that they have investment into the worthiness of the studio, and I feel like they do. Really feel blessed that at this point, that's what I have. Now, do, does your team there in the studio? Do they also help you with your? Shall we say franchise projects or extension kinds of work in terms of say for example like makevisible.org? Do they help you with that organization as well? I mean, you have you know you have so many things going on. I mean, how exactly does the team help you with the various projects that you're in, endeavoring to do? <laughs> so yeah, Make Visible is a nonprofit that I established to create educational. Exhibitions concerning conservation, preservation, and we're going through a stage right now where, where we're trying to envision again what more practically what we would do. But so right now, there's not a lot of staff on that nonprofit. However, <laughs> this year I plan to make it more active, and I talked about this exhibit, Rewilding Palmyra. So it's. In collaboration with the Nature Conservancy, so I plan to use that nonprofit to create a more educational aspect to the exhibition. So the current te- team, they yes, they will be involved with that too, I'm sure, but we'll probably end up getting someone else, or you know, or consultation anyway of how to do set up this next phase、uh, with the nonprofit. But you know, as far as other things that I do, you know, we have so many interesting prospects in the future. I think they're all excited about being a part of that, and so you know, I do work with the community action and and that practice and for my studio. But we're also making physical art, and that's growing. If I could say leaps and bounds, because it wasn't that way before, but now we're starting. What I really want to make <laughs> clear to the audience is perseverance. Yes, you know, just stick in there. Really, really, really. There's that interesting slogan that I learned. Gosh, forgot what his name is now, but he said, "Hope for the best, but expect the worst." And you have to have a tough skin. Like if you go into a gallery exhibition and none of your artwork sells, you have to be tough and just not take it so personal, and just keep going. And it takes a really a lot of belief in what you're doing, and just keep going. But I can honestly say it it'll happen. It'll happen. I love that. It's funny that you you mentioned that quote because I'm a fan of that quote too. I I heard it slightly different to say plan for the worst, hope for the best. <laughs> you know, and you're so right. And I tell artists that all the time. I mean, you know, or just people in general. You know, it's like yes, it's great to have dreams, but make sure that you can still pay your bills <laughs> on some level.、Um, you know, it's a tough one. You know, one of the things I have to, Taiji, I have to ask. You know, I I think you're the first. Well, certainly the first guest on the podcast that has ever come from a family of scientists. I mean, you you mentioned your father was a scientist. Was your mother a scientist as well? Or no?、Okay. Um, interestingly, my mother is an artist.、Mm-hmm. So she,、uh, yes, growing up, she, I would always see her doing artwork. She made a certain progress. She eventually showed in a couple galleries and things, but. She's very talented. A little bit more on the, I mean, a lot more <laughs> on the traditional side. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I have a lot of admiration. I mean, everybody has a lot of admiration for what she does. But yeah, it, so it's interesting that our family was split that way with parents. And even though I was thinking of being veterinarian or something to do, to go、yeah. into science, I really don't have the aptitude for science. But my two older brothers, they're doctors. One's a research in the research field, and one is a medical doctor. But my sister is amazing story that she has 
made use of both of those areas and she's she has a medical degree and then she's also doing art or let's say she's doing weaving and making garments and she's yeah, I mean, her things are beautiful. So she's the lucky one. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that's wonderful. Well, you know, the reason I brought that up is because I was I wanted to ask a very specific question about the influence your dad as a scientist might have had on your practice. Because as a scientist, I mean, the scientific method, the sort of iterative process of testing and evaluating and retesting, you know, to get to some sort of conclusion and I don't know what kind of science he practiced or what have you, but can you talk a little bit about what, if any, influence that might have had on your art practice, this brilliant dad you had in the sciences? Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. There's many influences from him. The one that pops in my mind is that he said in one's life, you probably will stumble across one great idea and hopefully you realize that and you're able to um, build upon that. So he studied immunology and then he developed, it's called an HLA tray, and you're able to test blood when someone has to have transplant and things. He invented a way to test people's blood and make matches. So I probably, he would say that's his big event that happened and that carried him throughout his life. For me, even though I do a lot of other things, a lot of it seems to always be based on projecting images on mist and the implications of that and the poetic nature of that. So that's one example. He always talked about finding something that could make a difference in the world. So he always told, I mean, there was nothing I can't, I couldn't follow him, but he said, you know, people are always interested in their health and bettering their health. And there will always be those out there that are, you know, want the latest. And so he really latched onto that in the science, in the science field. And then his drive to hone in on experimentation and the new ideas, I would say I definitely learned from him that part too. That's wonderful to hear. I'm so glad you mentioned the work you do with MIST because I, I wanted to ask you about that. What a incredibly novel and beautiful, compelling. So I, I haven't experienced it personally, just online. But tell me about that. How did you get there and how did that reveal itself to you? So I think I forgot to maybe mention <laughs> in my in my many years, there was a period where I went back to school to get a second MFA. I would have gotten, I love college and education. So if there were a PhD in studio art, I would have done that for sure. But I just, someone said, you know, you could get a second MFA. And I thought, wow, <laughs> what a luxury. So I did do that. And I did that in ceramics. But the chairman there was very um, open to me doing, you know, anything I wish. And then there was one particular day where I, I was sick. I had a humidifier. And then we had those old-fashioned slide projectors, you know, on a carousel. And somehow those connected. And then that idea of pairing that came to be. And there was a, there's so many years of refinement for that for me. And then one of the staff members is an engineer. I mean, not formally engineer, but he has an engineering mind. So he was, we were able to work together to form a good delivery system. So that part, yeah, no, but I, I can't tell you how much that medium speaks to so many issues, mainly with the nature about the fragility of nature, because you see that image on the mist and it's kind of fleeting and it's very moving. And so I'm wanting to explore that. And a current project that we're working on is food photography for a restaurant. And I wish I could show you, but the beautiful photographs that we're developing by what we do is we project the image on the mist and then we take still shots from from that mist. Fantastic. Right? How cool is that? So what it's starting to, when I look at those pictures, it's starting to messaging about the whole chemistry of food and the nature of food and, you know, how it changes its state and all this stuff. And it's just going to be incredible. I have a feeling. <laughs> <laughs> you literally, in talking about this very specific thing, you have become 
so animated and smiling so big that I know this project <laughs> is uh, is very special to you right now. That's very cool. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, sure. and just the ephemeral nature of the mist speaks to the ephemeral nature of you and me, right? It speaks yes. to the, you know, and yeah. that's that's what we need to be mindful of, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That's so, so true. And then you know, there's the element of the mist is uh, we use just pure water. So, of course, importance of water in all living organisms. So there's an interconnection that is made through this kind of media. By the way, you're probably sick of people suggesting this, but I'm going to suggest it to you anyway. You've got to bring this at scale to Burning Man. <laughs> oh, interesting, interesting. I have heard that, and we should do it because we're capable of doing it. Yes, it would be. It would. It would be. It would be as a burner myself if I uh, stumbled upon a great wall of mist at night in the playa with images being projected uh, onto the mist. That would be quite a beautiful experience. I want to see it. Bring it out. Yeah, especially in that kind of environment, and then. Yeah, I don't know why I haven't been to Burning Man. Hey, let me look into that one. Let me know. I mean, we have a big camp there. And please, oh, you know, okay. yeah, so if you have any questions or if you want to pick my brain or talk about it, let me know. But I, yeah, just this, I could see some a big installation. Well, kind of what's brilliant about it, too, is that to the extent that it's missed, the main canvas, if you will, just is, it's easy to haul in and haul out. I mean, you got to bring a lot of water, I guess, which water you got to bring <laughs> anyway, but it's not, you know, some of the structures that get fabricated and built out there are quite epic. This feels like what for the impact it's minimal. I'm guessing it's minimal gear for maximum impact versus mm. maximum gear for maximum impact, which in mm-hmm. a lot of, you know, logistically it's going to be easier. I guess is my point. But yeah, we've done different scales over the years. So the one that we really worked toward recently was to be able to install it in a gallery and have it compact enough that it doesn't affect everything else, the mist, and to have it be able to turn it off and on every day, you know, for yeah. the length of the exhibit. So we accomplished that. I definitely have done outdoor six feet wide installations. And so, yeah, and children, especially children, they love it. they like, oh, what is this? And <laughs> That's they fantastic. have so much fun with that. Yeah. Does the mist typically shoot down or does it shoot up? Or, I mean, does it vary? I mean, how, does, how do the misters work? Good question. Good question. So in Hawaii, it is said that, I uh, forgot the figure, but at least 200 different ways to express mist and rain, you know, in terms of quality and things. Mm-hmm. So I keep reminding my team <laughs> that there's so there's an infinite number of ways that we could keep exploring mist. So we have done it coming down. And for the larger mist work, that work, seems to work the best. For the smaller ones, we do the mist coming up. I guess maybe technically call it vapor. And then, but there's so much in between and how to explore. What I love about it is it's a big field to explore still. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and if you head north and the temperature drops, suddenly your mist becomes snow and you're projecting on snow. <laughs> That's something to try, really. I don't That's know. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. Taiji, I'm so grateful that we were able to sit down. I, I feel like we could talk for another hour. I want to be respectful of your time. I do hope that you'll come back. I hope to make it to your panel coming up. It's coming up March 5th, right? Or March 4th. Where are my notes? March 5th. March so this 5th. Coming, this coming Sunday. Yes, yes. So I will I will hope to be there to meet you personally. Great. So fingers crossed on that. Again, with two kids under 10, nothing is, <laughs> nothing is guaranteed. Believe me, I understand that one. Yeah. Yes, so... If I could make a little plug. Please, so, plug in. That's at what I was going to tell you. What do we, pr- to promote anything you want, tell us what we need to know. Oh, please. gosh. Oh, gosh. So one o'clock, we're, it's optional, but for anybody that wants to physically see the mural and experience the augmented reality, we're, we're meeting at one o'clock. By one we're going to head towards the panel, which is at the Japanese American National Museum. Mm-hmm. They're beautiful theater space they have. And 
You got to really got to see the space. (laughs) But anyway, so that will be a panel with all the participants. So we'll be that. And then moderated by Shana from LA Weekly. Shout out Shana. We love our Shana. Yes. Yes. She's very well respected. And I expect a lively discussion for sure. (laughs) For sure. sure. Yeah, we're, we're looking forward to it. Excellent. Well, everybody listening gets your, I guess, to be fair, this episode will air after March 5th. So. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so look it up on YouTube, people. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but well, I tell you what, more to come. Taiji, thank you so much for your for being so generous. And thank you for all that you do. Thank you for your heart. It shines through. And you've made us better people today for, for coming on and uh, letting us talk uh, about your practice and your vision and just keep doing what you're doing, my friend. Oh, thank you so much. It's been an honor to talk to you. Please contact me anytime if you'd like any more feedback or I treasure the experience. Thank you. Fantastic. Thanks so much. And I'm just going to say, don't go anywhere when we disconnect. I just want to chat with you just for a couple more minutes. Sure. But Taiji, thanks so much. We'll see you real soon. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Not Real Art Podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. Also, remember to subscribe so you get all of our new episodes. Not Real Art is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles. Our theme music was created by Ricky Peugeot and Desi Deloro from the band Parlor Social. Not Real Art is created by We Edit Podcast and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Not Real Art. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating creative culture and the artists who make it.